Well, anyway. Um, so we're uh, week two. We're looking at the uh, doctrine of vocation, um, which again, just as a quick reminder, is um, it's this idea that God actually himself issues callings to us uh, and sets us into particular roles and uh, sets of duties in life associated with those roles. Vocation isn't just the job that you decide to take on or that you train for. Vocation, in this strict sense, is God actually calling you to perform a certain kind of service. And one thing I don't think I brought out uh, very clearly last week, but is definitely worth knowing, this isn't just to say that, therefore, whatever it is you happen to be doing in life means God has called you to that, and that is obviously the work of the Lord. I mean, otherwise you could promote all kinds of questionable actors. Well, you know, I'm a drug dealer, and this is the way God is working for me in the world. Predestined, wasn't it? I was predestined <laughs> to be a, a drug dealer. So uh, we don't mean whatever uh, duty in your hand finds to do, that is clearly what God has called you to. Um, that would be the idea that God is calling you internally, and whatever you feel like God is putting you to do, that's obviously what you're set to do. We talked a little bit about that at the tail end, and the problems that creates, especially if, say, your internal sense of God's call is in direct conflict with some external obvious duties you have. For instance, the one I think I used, say, I mean, obviously... Um, I have a web of duties to my wife, but what if I feel like there's this other lady out there who God is calling me to love instead? Well, if all we're saying about is whatever your hand finds to do and whatever you feel God is directing you to do is obviously what God's calling you to do, well then, I'm free to leave my wife and go to that other lady who God is clearly calling me to do. That's not what we mean. Um, very specifically, when we call it a calling, we mean that it was actually a call issued by and through the word of God, as laid forth in scripture. This isn't to say God has issued something from the heavens, go and be a truck driver, go and be a whatever else. It's simply to say that in the scriptures, God actually has commanded certain foundational sorts of relationships in life. And that by bringing you to enter into those stations in life, God has very directly, through his command, externally given in the scriptures, given you a calling to fulfill that role, and through you, then God is therefore working to take care of his creation in some way or other. Okay, so vocation is not just whatever I happen to be doing. Vocation is um, the outgrowth of God's command in scriptures. So we can talk about truck drivers as a vocation from God, but in a more indirect sense of saying, God has arraigned, called some people to be masters and some to be servants, and a truck driver is a kind of servant. Does that make sense? And, the, and again, one of the big reasons I want to emphasize that is otherwise vocation is just basically whatever you want it to be, and it doesn't really have any actual norm to it. It's just a way of making you feel better that, hey, I'm doing this, so God must be wanting me to do this. Um, we mean something a little more meaty, than that. On that score, something we didn't finish up last time, um, I don't know if you happen to bring your sheets from last time, you don't necessarily do it, but I did want to finish up a few things about what some rules of thumb as we're thinking about vocation. Um, I don't think, know if I happen to have any extra sheets for you guys, I'm afraid. 
But um, I think we finished up by saying that just because you have whatever belongs to one vocation um, is not necessarily something that you can claim for a different vocation. That is to say, if God has called me to be a father, and I'm pretty sure I mentioned this last time, it doesn't mean, therefore, I can assume the authority of also being, say, um, an employer and treat my kids like a worker. Um, just because God has called me to be um, one thing doesn't mean I can also, therefore, say God has called me to be all these other things. In fact, if I'm called to be a parent to my kids, I am very much not called to be the parent of another person's kids, and I, am not, I do not have the authority to act like the parent of another person's kids. I just don't. Um, I can't abrogate that authority to myself. The authority that I have in my relationships with other people is a direct outgrowth of the word of God. And I forgot to turn my cell phone off again. It's my glasses appointment for later. Um, let me turn off my sound here so I don't get too many more of those. All right. So um, anyway, uh, we do have authority when we're in relationships with other people. We have rights and we have duties is the way we often talk about it, right? Um, as a husband, I have rights and duties associated with my wife. As a parent, I have rights and duties associated with my children. That's just our modern way of talking about it, but it gets at the point. To each kind of role, there is a specific kind of obligation you have and a specific kind of authority you have. And uh, whatever authority I have doesn't derive from what I feel I can get away with or whatever power I think I can exercise. It derives explicitly from the authority that God delegates to me through his word. Does that make sense? So even a parent doesn't have absolute authority over their child. Um, for instance... I don't have the authority to murder my kid. However much I might tell my child, I brought you into the world, <laughs> and I can take you out of it. I'm actually overstepping my bounds if I follow through on that threat, um, and I'm committing murder, which is not something I'm authorized to do. Now, yet, as governments, as we've talked about, if the government says, um, and has a legitimate cause to say, you are a threat to the rest of the well-being of society, therefore the only way to deal with you is to execute you, guess what? They actually are acting within the bounds of their God-given authority. Um, so my point simply is, we all have a limit to our authority in our relationships, and that authority is uh, given, delegated, and limited by the word of God. Make fairly good sense there? All right. Um, by the same token, it is therefore possible to sin against both God and against your vocation by violating the limits of your authority. So if I, as a parent, take it upon myself to, uh, say, violate what God says about not driving your children to anger and frustration, I just make it my mission to make my kids' life miserable, start knocking them around with the drop of a hat, guess what? I'm sinning against not only the child, which I certainly am, but certainly against God and the vocation that God has given me. Um, vocation is not a statement that says, whatever it is you decide to do in your role is okay. It actually sets a constant judgment against, or a standard of judgment for whether I am doing well or whether I'm violating the will of God. 
So again, vocation is also not a, uh, a blessing of the status quo, that however it is our society is running must be okay because God is behind it pulling the strings and therefore has called us to this. It's actually constantly a critical framework for judging our society in every phase of history, where we can measure specifically and saying, are the things that we're doing to collectively as a people and as individuals in society in line with, in tune with God's word, or clearly stepping outside of it. And if it's clearly stepping outside of it, that's a time we need to start reforming our personal lives at the very least, and possibly reforming society. Make sense? Okay. That's uh, fairly straightforward stuff, but it's good to have in the background, especially as we're diving into today, where we're going to look at more specific vocations God has given us. We've been kind of talking in the general sense, this is what we're saying by vocation. Um, now we're going to kind of dive into this. And you might remember we talked about it in three basic realms. These are just kind of handy ways of talking about various vocations. Um, God's vocations for the household, for our life um, in the church, and our life in society. Um, we're, so we're just going to kind of operate with that just for the sake of ease. And let's talk to, we're going to talk today about the vocations in the household. Um, and this is definitely one that I'm sure will uh, raise some eyebrows because scripture says a lot of things fairly repetitively, <laughs> um, fairly clearly, that don't necessarily jive well with some of the basic assumptions we operate with because we've been taught these as a positive thing in our society. Um, so let's, let's start diving through these. When we're talking vocations in the household, we're kind of talking about, uh, well, several big ones. We're talking about um, precisely um, parents to children and uh, wives to husbands and vice versa. So marriage and parentage. Those are the two big things in the home, and I think we can all agree with that. We can also talk a little bit about the single childless life because Scripture does actually say quite a lot specifically to those individuals who still live in a, so to speak, a household of one. And they have their own specific calling. And we don't want to just push them to the side because it's easy to talk about marriage and the family as though that's the only proper way God has called us to live. Even if we don't mean to do that, I mean, how many sermons do you hear on singleness? <laughs> But you do hear a lot of sermons, probably, you're going to hear one this weekend, about marriage, just because we're having the wedding of Cana as our reading. But uh, point being, that's also something we'll, if we have time, get to. But we'll see how far we get, because like I said, I want to keep this one a little briefer because I have to get to St. Louis today between uh, now and confirmation. Um, Adelaide being in the hospital, of course. Anyway, let's, uh, let, one thing I want to point out is Interestingly enough, there is actually no usage of a word in either the Old or the New Testaments, in the Greek or the Hebrew, that's equivalent to our word for spouse. That is to say, Scripture doesn't speak about married people in a generic way. Hardly at all. There might be a place, but I have racked my brain and my surgeons and is trying to find it, and I cannot find it. Um, the way scripture usually addresses parties in the marriage union is it either speaks about the marriage union as an institution 
or the specific individuals as either husband or wife. And when you read the verses respecting husbands and wives, um, largely what you get a sense of is that uh, Scripture doesn't even think of this as a role where there's this generic role like we think of a spouse, which both parties are uh, always going to be obligated, and we might happen to talk about the individual responsibility of a husband and a wife. But in our way of talking, we usually think of them as more or less the same thing, right? Husband and wife, I mean, they virtually have all the same duties. Ideally, they should have all the same duties because they should be 100% equal, not only in dignity, but also in function. That is to say, everything the husband can do, the wife can do, probably better. And everything the wife can do, except I suppose having kids, the husband can do. That's the basic theory that you probably uh, heard, I don't know if you grew up with it, but I promise you from every marriage counseling session I have done with younger people, that is their basic assumption. That that's how God actually intends it. We are functionally interchangeable. And we can get into all the things that this has changed in our society in the last several years, being, well, if they're entirely inter interchangeable in function, why not actually in person? Why do you have to have a husband and a wife? Why not a husband and a husband? They're basically the same, or a wife and a wife. For that matter, why wouldn't you send women out to uh, combat? Why would you send husbands and sons only rather than wives and daughters? Um, and it goes on and on when you get this idea that functionally there is no difference in obligation and role between husband and wife. There really isn't that much difference in function and role between male and female. Um, that's what a huge part of our culture is all about. But I'm not here to talk about that per se. I'm here to simply point that out to say, and then we hear what scripture actually talks about when it talks about the individuals, husband and wife in the marriage union. And I, I don't even have to give you much introduction. You're going to hear this and you're going to say, huh, <laughs> really? So let's just start this, and we'll even start it in the order. The reason I start with wives first and then husbands is simply because in most of the places Scripture, the New Testament in particular, talks about this, it usually starts with the wives. That's just the order it starts with when it addresses it. Um, so let's, let's just read through a few of these verses. Um, certainly there is overlap in the callings, and when there's overlap, it usually refers to both parties. It'll say the husband and the wife. And we'll talk about the two and not just spouses generally. But there's overlap between their obligations and their roles. But uh, there's also definitely, each one has a very unique calling. Um, so let's start off with the, the easy, low-hanging fruit here of Genesis 2.24, which if you look down just a little, you'll see is also the first one under husbands. Because this is definitely one of those that applies to both. Because this... The language it uses, obviously, is referencing both husband and wife. Somebody want to read that for us. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Right. And uh, NIV says they. Technically, the, the Hebrew says the two will become one flesh. Um, so... Ostensibly, it starts off talking about the man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. Um, but notice, it's very much including the wife. The two become one flesh. 
So what does that kind of indicate about the calling that a wife, and we can also say about a husband, because it equally applies to both in this case, um, says the two, not just the one. Um, what's, what's kind of, what do you kind of take this as the calling that both wives and husbands have towards each other? On the one hand, I mean, well, let's, before we dive into that kind of, uh, I guess that you would say that was kind of an outcome that naturally follows from it, that you're going to want to take care of this other person. But what specifically, and I'm, I'm even asking for more just kind of parroting, what does the scripture just literally say about the two? You're united, you're right. one. You become one, you become united. Um, it even precedes that by saying, therefore, the man will leave his father and his mother and the two will become one flesh. Like I put it with the uh, premarital people, uh, this is a very literal statement that what it previously was your immediate family, you as child to your parents, you get called by God to make that your extended family, and so this new person, and of course any children you might have with him or her, um, becomes your immediate family. Your primary calling moves away from uh, your obligation as a child to your own parents and a member of their household into this new union you have with this other person who you are now united so closely you can't even consider yourself as a separate entity fully from this other person. You become one. One in future, one in purposes, one in goals, one in house, one in so many ways under God's world. And uh, so your obligations remain, of course, as we'll talk about a little later when we get to children, to your parent, birth parents and your family of origin, but it becomes a second-tier vocation to the primary vocation where God says you actually leave that person and start cleaving to this new person. Make sense? Now, of course, as we all know, in-laws have a lot of difficulty with that sometimes, but uh, that's not this section, that's the next section when we're talking parents and children. But the big thing here is, like you said, you're obligated to union. This is your new role. You are united with, the man is united to his wife and the wife is united to her husband. Now let's move in. That's, that I think we can probably all get on the same page with. I don't think too many of you are probably thinking now, wait a minute, pastor, really? <laughs> if you are, by all means, speak now or forever hold your peace. But let's go to some different passages, which may cock an eyebrow. Um, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, if one of you wants to look up that. Somebody want to look up 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Somebody want to look up the next one on there, Colossians 3, 18. And, uh, you know, just kind of go down the list with different people here. And when you have Ephesians, go ahead and read that for me, whoever it is. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. All right, before we open this up for your initial reaction, just want to drive the point home that this is not an outlier. Somebody want to read 1 Peter 3 1 through 6. And this is not Paul writing, this is now Peter, different apostle. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without 
All right, now, Colossians 3.18. We're just going to read all of these, and then we'll start talking about them. I submit to your husband as if fitted for glory. All right, somebody, Titus 2, 4 through 5. And they, and train the younger women who love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will... And finally, 1 Corinthians 11, 3. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. All right. So, there's just a smattering from a rather large range of books in the New Testament. Um, and again, I emphasize this is New Testament. This isn't like Old Testament's regulations for Israel that... Uh, Christ has fulfilled and therefore were only for Israel. These are things that the apostles write to many churches, and several different apostles wrote these to different churches um, as things advisable for Christians, the new Israel to do. Now, that being said, how do you feel about all of that? First of all, what does it sound like all of these passages are more or less saying. Who's the boss? <laughs> all right. The husband is the boss. <laughs> and therefore, wives, <laughs> you listen to him, right? <laughs> um, now, how does that sit with you? Just as that rough and ready kind of interpretation. We'll circle back to it to nuance it a little bit. But Just right on. Right on, <laughs> my man. You can't be wrong, though, when <laughs> right. I, well, and, and that, that's kind of a, a good telling thing. Um, I know my husband is a doofus. <laughs> not, not that that's what you're saying. Well, this Titus 2 doesn't say anything about men. No, Titus 2 does not say anything about men. And Titus 2 is very specifically, uh, it's actually part of an instruction to widows and older women about how they should teach the younger women to live their life by being... Um, you know, at home, uh, taking, loving their children, submitting to their husbands, and so forth. Um, now, uh, like, but like Ela said, I mean, for one thing, we all know husbands are <laughs> imperfect sinners. Uh, Christ may be the head of the church, but at least he's a perfect head. He doesn't make mistakes. Husbands, boy, uh, they make mistakes. <laughs> they make stupid calls. They sin. Um, we can talk about what, how that factors into all this, but kind of the fact that we go right to that gets to the idea that there's something that doesn't sound immediately like that fits with the way we think about things. How many of you were, now you guys are from a bit different generation than myself, 
How many of you were raised to think this way? Husband is more or less head of the household and in charge. Okay, for you got ladies, I don't think this is quite as big of a conceptual jump as if I were presenting this, say, in my premarital, where uh, when we pass out these uh, little assessments through Prepare and Enrich that kind of help give them ideas about what they have talked about, what they haven't talked about, I have never received a, a feedback that did not say that their basic view was that men and the wives and the husbands were on exactly the same level. And that's, uh, it should be that way. That's just how, how many of you would expect that your own daughters would read this and say, yep, that sounds about how I, I think about it. I'm seeing a couple head shakes. I don't think so. I, I think, you know, they think, you know, I mean, they can think for themselves and can make a decision as well as what the, the man can. Right. Yeah, it's, there's, and there's a lot of people who would hear this and not just say, well, that doesn't sound quite how I was raised. They would actually take this to be offensive, chauvinistic, um, patriarchal. That uh, this is an old bygone relic of an age that was horrible for women because it puts the man on top and the woman has to be firmly underneath. And who wants to live like that? We know better now that women should be equal, say, in the household, one way, 100% away. Again, going back to this completely interchangeableness that you probably see in the world all around you. Um, my point in raising this, first of all, is to highlight the fact that our society thinking about the roles of the respective relation between husband and wives on this point is markedly different than what the scriptures seem to say repeatedly and across several biblical books. I mean, this is there are, there are some teachings that the church has that rely on maybe one or two verses of scripture. This is something that is, there's just, let's say, a lot of textual evidence that this is not just a random outlier or merely a cultural artifact of that particular day and age. It seems to be, especially when you take 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul appeals to the way God arranges creation and the fundamental natural relationships between man and God. Um, the, the head of every uh, man is Christ, the head of a uh, woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Seems like he's saying something more than, well, you know, in our day and age, this is how society works. So in order to be uh, not disrespectful to our, the people around us or cause a scandal, we'll behave as though this is a good way to behave. It just doesn't quite sound like he's saying, this is the culture, let's not make a stir in the culture. It sounds a lot more like he's saying, this is just the way God is. In Ephesians 5, where he just points it to the relationship between Christ and the church. Um, well, these verses, I mean, yeah, they sound extremely hierarchical until you read the following verses. Well, it goes along with them. You know, in and of themselves, these verses say one thing, but when you read the next verses, you understand that, well, yeah, you have this authority, but there's a lot of responsibility that goes with this authority that, that creates this oneness in marriage. You have hit, you used a word there that is a, a very important word here, um, hierarchy. The idea that there is, so to speak, a chain of authorities, right? 
So like in the military, for instance, you've got big old general five-star guy up there, you've got your colonels, and then you've got your grunts down beneath them. And there's a pecking order to it, right? Um, and of course, when we hear this kind of top language, that's what comes to mind, hierarchy, that there's a chain of authority. Now, as Bill points out, um, as we're going to see very shortly when we get to husbands especially, um, it's not their force asserting, it is definitely not asserting, well, since the husband is higher up the hierarchy than um, little wife over here, he calls all the shots as he sees fits, and frankly, he gets to play the role of tyrant and king to do whatever it is that he finds is appropriate, and the wife just ought to knuckle under. That's her role, is to knuckle under. <laughs> and it's his role to call all the shots as he sees fit. But as Bill points out, when we read the next verses, this is a very, it doesn't paint that kind of picture at all. In fact, as we'll see, just to summarize it, the entire life of the husband gets bent toward the welfare and the care and the honor of his wife. Now, here's the thing that does, I, that, why I'm glad you hit this word, but that doesn't remove the fact that the way Scripture talks about this irreducibly hierarchical. There's, to, to say that it isn't is to remove practically everything the scripture actually says about headship, submission. Why even use those words if we're not talking hierarchy? And yet it always uses those words. Chain of command, though, as we're going to see, is not about a chain of dignity. It is about um, a functional order to help things flow along well, orderly, and effectively. Imagine, for instance, let's move back over to the military thing. Is the officer dispensable? Or the, the grunt on the ground? Does nobody care about that little soldier out there? He's just fodder to get blown up as my pawn, and my, as my general sees fit. Now, there are military leaders who act like that, but I think we all know, and everybody outside and inside the military knows ideally, the general ought to have a profound amount of respect for those field soldiers on the ground. They know the soldiers on the ground. They might be asked to die for their country. But the goal is not, as I think a famous movie once said, the goal is not to die for your country. The goal is to make the other person die for theirs. Um, but the point is, the, the general, because they have this goal that they recognize is higher, and so, by the way, does the grunt, and so does the middle management, so to speak, they all recognize that they are working together to that goal in the place that they've been assigned for the maximal functioning of achieving that goal. And if you did not have this hierarchy, what would happen? If you made the military brigade a democracy, where everybody has an equal say, what do you think would happen to the achievement of that goal? Chaos. Chaos. Now, here's I'm going to put this down into a, uh, a, a familiar trope. You turn to your spouse and you say, what do you want for dinner? How does that discussion go? I just got to, oh my gosh. <laughs> what do you want for lunch? I don't care. Just say what you want. These are your yeah. options. How do I know what you want for lunch? And what happens when you make even small decisions like that 100% across the board democratic? Well, if you have a tie, which you will in a two-person democracy sometimes, how do you settle this? 
<laughs> Rings a bell. You each fix your own. Oh. You're done with it. <laughs> and yet nobody ends up happy with that. Um, now, obviously, we're being a little facetious here. We're taking a thing that you could settle. You, there's no reason you couldn't settle this democratically. But the point is, once you start thinking, well, we're all equal here. We all have a voice. And it's ideal to have that. A democracy of two is a horribly ineffective thing. You can't achieve anything. And so all things being equal, by and large, somebody wins in those, right? One way or another, somebody gets to finally cast the decisive votes by, saying, by either the other person conceding, this isn't as important to me as apparently it is to you, or the other person saying, okay, look, I'm just going to make the decision so we can move forward with life past this particular driver. <laughs> um, even on minor things, when you lose hierarchy, you lose the ability to function. And by the same token, you go back to Genesis 2.24 where you become one. If the bottom person on that rung fails, guess what? Well, right. We've all failed. And that's Your the other thing. Has failed. You know, it's all gone. Interestingly, let's also talk about another analogy that uh, relates to this. Um, when we're talking about the church, how does Paul talk about this? As a body. And what does he say? Christ is definitively the head of that body. And every part of the body has a different part. Some of those are, so to speak, humbler. This is going to be our reading in two weeks, as it turns out. Um, that is to say, they have rules that seem, and he very directly says the word seems to be of lower dignity, so to speak. But in fact, they are just as necessary to the functioning of the body as the rest of it. This is the kind of thing Paul, I think, is useful to think about when we get back to this relationship between husband and wife. Yes, there is a hierarchy here. Scripture just speaks that way. And frankly, we just need to get on board with talking about it so that we can actually start to figure out how we work the way Scripture says that well, rather than the chaos by the way, it's amazing how as we have risen in egalitarianism in marriage, divorce rates have skyrocketed. wonder why that is. Um, but uh, it's not to say, therefore, that the wife is down here in dignity and the husband is way up here in dignity. As again, we're going to see, um, each one has their very necessary and wholesome place so that if you get rid of one or diminish the place of one, the whole thing falls apart like crazy. If the husband plays tyrant, this thing falls apart. If the wife, by the same token, plays the tyrant, this whole thing falls apart. If the wife, when they function in the way that God has called them, however, this thing works beautifully because it's not as though, on, going back to our drive-through example, as we'll see, um, the, somebody says, well, what do you want for dinner? The wife says, well, I'd love some Taco Bell. And the husband says, well, I'd like Panera Bread. And therefore, husband always wins. We're going to Panera Bread. Um, in truth, what we're saying here is husband, who is, has final responsibility for the welfare of the family. And by the way, God will hold the husband uniquely responsible for the way the family turns out, um, since he gives the husband this particular call. The husband will look at the wife and say, well, I want to give myself up for this person. <laughs> and I want to do what uh, we can agree on is the, what, I, what, what I know is the best or what I believe to be the best or what I think is going to be the best good for us right now. And frankly, 
I think we're just going to do what she would prefer right now. Now, of course, the wife is the one who made the decision. The husband, in a certain sense, nevertheless, has the responsibility for how this all goes. So you can get mad at him if the uh, Taco Bell turns out to be bad. It's usually the opposite. He wants to go Taco Bell, I want to go to Well, there you go. But um, I'm using this, again, very simple dynamic of, not very simple, actually, when you're actually just asking this question, what are we going to eat for dinner, to illustrate the point that the hierarchy is actually kind of important here for just functioning, but it's also something God has ordained, but it doesn't mean, therefore, one just trumps the other. In fact, they're working together for the good of the whole, precisely because this one is going to ultimately respect this one, and this one is ultimately going to be seeking this one. Okay? Just, by the way, in a similar sense, the military ought to be doing as they push forward to something that is bigger than the preservation of the military, just as, we'll see, husband and wife are pushing bigger towards something together, bigger than their marriage, their relationship, their individual autonomy or self-worth. They're pushing towards union with God. Um, makes sense so far. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to this to say, well, what is the limits of all of this here when we get to husbands? But this, to go to Gail, something Gayla pointed out, well, what if the husband is just saying something that's obviously wrong or obviously doing something sinful? There are bad husbands in the world, by the way. Um, I think you know that. There are husbands who are abusive. There are husbands who are selfish. And even when they aren't that way, they just sometimes lose sight of what's important in life. Just like everybody does. But husbands do that. Is the wife, therefore, obligated to just keep quiet as a mouse and say, well, you're the boss. I guess we'll just have to live with it. No. On the one hand, precisely because this is a vocation from God, God has given the husband, just as he has given the wife, a specific role with its own specific duties, rights, and so forth. And just as the husband is therefore duty-bound to call the wife back to her vocation when she goes astray, the wife is duty-bound to call the husband back to his vocation when he goes astray. So if the husband decides, boy, I'm going to blow all of our savings on this new boat I wanted, the wife is perfectly within her role as the God-given helpmeet to the family and uh, the one, even out of respect for her husband as her head who is supposed to be looking out for the welfare of both her and the family to say, are you sure that's really the best thing to do with our savings? That seems a little selfish, dear, considering we have to pay for college. Um, and in fact, if you do this, I'm gonna, I, I think I can rightfully say I'm going to be legitimately angry at you I don't like the idea, and in fact, I'm going to go on record saying I oppose the idea, and you are acting against what I believe to be actually good for our family. Of course she's entitled to say that. She's obligated to say that. That's another part of being um, called to be somebody in reunion with somebody who has their own call. Hold them accountable to their call. Make sense? Now, okay, I've been doing a lot of talking. Spent a lot more time on this particular one. I, I thought we'd get through this whole sheet today. We got through one set of verses. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts about all of this? 
again, I expect to have an easier time with this particular crowd than I would say if I had a 20-something final study. <laughs> Oh, it, it is completely fallen down. And most of the shows on TV, TikTok and stuff, usually the roller boys are going back to the United States and the man and the music and everybody. Oh, yeah, that, that's the sitcom trope is in the family. The father, to the extent he has any real authority, it's just a joke because he's an idiot all the time. And the wife is always there. Apparently her vocation in all of these shows is to clean up the mess of the father and actually do the right thing. Yeah, any commercial is just totally flip-flopped into where the, yeah, like you say, the man looks like a buffoon, you know, and the woman's calling all the shots. And she's the one who's smart, strong, and yeah, right. this is fast-ackwards. It is. And uh, by the way, I do want to say, just to clarify this, this is also not a statement about their skills or talents. This is not a statement that, uh, for instance, men are simply wiser in every instance than the women. That they're more capable decision makers than the women. Uh, this is not suggesting that there aren't families where there's doofus husbands and well-put-together wives. There are, of course, those families. Um, calling is not about what the person is actually skilled and capable to do. Um, as we'll get into a little later, this is one reason we don't... Uh, this is one justification some church bodies use for calling women pastors. Well, women can be just as good at public speakers. They're often more empathetic than men. They could do the pastoral jobs better than men often. So why wouldn't you call them to it? Granted, they might have skills that seem to be better suited to it, but it's not the skills that make that put you into the position. It's the calling from God. And uh, very much like in the Garden of Eden, what was it that caused the first sin? They had a call from God. Don't eat this tree. But what did they think they knew better? Well, it's going to give me the skills and abilities to function more like God. <laughs> Isn't that a good thing? Therefore, I'll have more in my person by, as a consequence of doing this, and that's a better course of action than the call to God, which has called me to be humbly submissive to my head of him, as him. And that's the beginning of the end of all good, decent order and good life. Um... So what do you do if, you're, uh, if you happen to recognize as a husband that your wife is, in fact, more capable of you? Well, you can delegate. <laughs> you can say, um, why don't you handle the family finances? Why don't you handle, um, actually, uh, this aspect of raising our kids? Why don't you handle this particular aspect? Why don't you make this decision? Because I just, I'm not very good at thinking. It's still, of course, the husband will have ultimate responsibility, just like when the general delegates to a colonel the authority to make certain kinds of decisions. Who's responsible when it goes south? Well, both of them. But the general is the one who's ultimately responsible. The buck stops at the head. Um, likewise, so in the marriage union, when the husband delegates responsibility, as he ought to, when the wife is simply more capable uh, in certain aspects, Still, the husband has to answer for this because he has the calling for this. She is, in a certain sense, simply submitting to his call by exercising those decisions and things. 
after you're married for so long, don't necessarily say, well, okay, you're better at this, you do that, right. blah, blah, blah. You automatically you kind of go fall into path. it, right. You know, it's not really discussed. It's right, it's not a powwow that you right. have to right. make these things. Automatically, one's more, I don't want to say capable, right. but more has a tendency to be able to do this thing better or, you know, mm -hmm. control this, that. It's not necessary. So if you do this, you do that. Right, exactly. You just kind of fall into what seems to work the best. And I'm not saying you have to have a discussion about this where the husband says, I hereby authorize you to do this. No. <laughs> it's just to say, if something comes up and suddenly you, this becomes an issue, how do you, who ultimately, I guess you could say, who ultimately gets to make the final decision? Um, ultimately, the husband has responsibility for who makes the final decision. Um, even if he puts that authority into the hands of the wife. This is what a lot of evangelical churches are doing a great job of uh, highlighting called complementarity. We aren't made identical. Men are not women and women are not men. Therefore, neither are brides husbands or husbands brides. But they exist with their unique strengths and weaknesses and for that matter, their unique vocations in order to complement one another as they push each other through life in this world toward their ultimate goal in God. Um, but like I said, we've completely lost sight of that as a culture because we believe we know better than the Bible. That, there, that obvious differences aren't different. And we ignore facts of nature, for instance. I mean, uh, people who say there is literally no difference between these two. Forget one of the fundamental ordering factors of how God created us. Women are better equipped, uniquely equipped, to bear and raise children. Raise meaning husband, without some serious scientific intervention, cannot even feed said baby. Um, so who, of course, is naturally ordered in a way to care for and rear the young children? The one who has to feed, who has to feed them every two hours prior to the invention of baby formula. It's only within the hun last 150 years or so that we could move away from these technologically. <laughs> and as technology developed, that's, we started to get bigger ideas about what we should be able to do thanks to the technology making it possible. Um, another little sidebar note, technology is never indifferent. It always changes the way the world works, and therefore it changes what we think the, how we think the world should work. And so here we are, since men can now feed the women, still can't bear children. I don't know if they're ever going to find a way to make that happen. <laughs> but uh, suddenly we've forgotten that there was a reason that men were always the providers of the family and that women were usually the home. Now, I'm not saying that's how it has to be forever and ever. I'm just saying even those gender roles that are not necessarily vocational in the strict sense of Christ has an obvious command were grounded in nature. How is the woman supposed to go out and farm when she's got a baby to feed every two hours? <laughs> Obviously, the other party has to do this. Um, but again, I admit, that's going a little beyond the, the doctrine of vocation to merely point out, we know these differences are in nature. Vocation isn't rooted in nature. Vocation is the creator of nature. When God issues the call, I will make a helper suitable to you, issues the wife, he creates the wife. When he uh, creates the husband and sets him before the wife, 
and uh, calls Adam to forsake husband, father and mother. Obviously, he didn't have a mom and dad, but why would he say that? Why would they say that there except that God is in overtly the one inspiring this sense already there that Adam is called, therefore, to forsake his father and mother and cling to his wife so that the two may become one flesh. When God issues the vocation, creation happens. And that's the way it's meant to function, because that's the way God actually spells it out. And our problem is we never really believe God. We think we know better. And taking that to the extreme, I think, I've been told when this church first started, I don't know, back in the 1860s, you know, the men were on one side and women and children were on the other side <laughs> yeah. of the church. Now, right. I, I, you know, I wasn't here, but... I, Actually, right. you know, that's I just said that to Ellie last night. The church I grew up in, that's what we did. Yeah, that was... There were three sections. The men were here, the women were here, <laughs> and the youth sat over here, because I've been reading all these Amish books, you know. Right. <laughs> but I said, hey, I didn't realize it, but we did that too. Yeah, standard practice for a long time. Now, by the way, I also want to point out, this is not to say, therefore, every traditional gender role for men versus women was the scriptural way to do things. I don't mean that. I'm just saying um, the gender roles that developed kind of developed as people's own sense of how to fit their lives into the order that God actually set up. Um, whether they went too far, of course they did sometimes. Whether they went uh, too little, of course they did sometimes. Uh, there's nothing in the scripture that says you absolutely have to have men sitting over here and women over here. There is a lot in scripture that strongly implies men are uniquely responsible also for the spiritual upbringing of their family. Again, there's another one that uh, our culture has forsaken. Just look at which gender is usually the one in charge of rape, making sure kids go to church these days. Um, but... Obviously, we can, we can uh, take our own interpretations and understandings of what God actually has said too far. And it's not to say that that was sinful. It's just to say it's not God-ordained. <laughs> it does actually go back all the way to the, uh, the uh, temple period where they, uh, they built the temple in such a way that uh, only men were supposed to be in certain parts of the temple and uh, women and children outside. Why again? Well... Same kind of reason that they did that in the past. Why do you think they did that in the past, by the way? That they had men on one side, women and children somewhere else. It wasn't just because they thought, well, women and children are pointless. <laughs> Let's only talk to men. I'm not saying this is a good practice. I'm not saying it's something we ought to do. In fact, I think we shouldn't probably do that. Um, but the logic was, men are the spiritual heads of household. Um, how many of you sat with your kids in church recently when they're young and had a good, attentive hearing of the sermon? <laughs> it doesn't happen very easily because, obviously, children are going to be a distraction, right? Well, somebody better hear, the idea was somebody in the house better be hearing the sermon so that they can teach it to their children and the wife, or whoever, and since the wife should be taking care of the child more anyway, and the man should be the head of the household spiritually, we'll make sure the men can listen attentively so they can go home and instruct their wives and their children in what they heard. That was the logic. Again, not defending it. Simply saying that was the logic. And it did actually have some logical tie-ins to what Scripture does say. That doesn't mean that's what Scripture teaches. 
It means to say it's a practice that is not out of harmony with Scripture. Therefore, it was not sinful practice. And it might have even been a useful practice for the time and the place. That is not also, that again is not to say that's the way we should always do it. Because there is a lot about the way we currently do it that is also in harmony with the Scripture specifically about training a child in the way they should go. And fathers having, by the way, primary responsibility for that, and therefore sitting with their families and making sure their children learn how to sit quietly and listen and grow in worship. So both ways are permissible, just as there are a lot of ways that are permissible now. It's not to say that women cannot leave the home and go and get jobs. It's not teaching that. Although, again, you could see the logic of why that always was the case. It is to say that the fundamental vocation does get violated all the time now, that husbands are to be heads of the wives, wives to respect their husbands. Um, we've got a lot more to say about wives that is uh, not just this hierarchical stuff, and a lot more to say about husbands about why they need to reform a lot these days. <laughs> and get back to being actually decent husbands and not uh, who knows what they're trying to do these days, if by and large. If you church service where only the men could come, how many would you have here? We'd have a smaller service. This <laughs> congregation is a pretty high proportion still, but uh, man, I've, I've been to congregations where it's probably 75% ladies. And that just says a lot about how far we've fallen. <laughs> Right, And not just in terms of breaking the third commandment, but breaking the vocation that husbands just don't even care what their duties are anymore. At least, not all husbands, obviously, but by and large, they're trained not to think of their duties this way. Anyway, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.